Hi, welcome to episode 21 of Sparks of Madness, and for this week's introduction I have decided to take a leaf out of the mighty Adam Buxton's book, and uh, I'm actually doing this introduction while I'm walking the dog, so the only difference is I'm massively fat and unfit, so this might sound like a pervert breathing heavily down the phone to you, I apologise in advance if that's the case. This week I am uh, speaking with Dave Chawner, who is a comedian who is based in London. Um, he's been on the circuit for about 11 years um, and his material is largely based around his own experiences of mental health. And what's interesting about Dave is that has then led him on to doing loads of other stuff. Um, he's written a best-selling book about anorexia called, brilliantly called, Weight Expectations. He uh, has as a result of that, featured on Breakfast TV, talking about the book, etc., and done a show about it, uh, which was actually turned into a TED Talk. I'm 43. I'm still not really sure what a TED Talk is, but I know it's quite impressive. Um, and actually, out of 21 episodes, what's impressive is that we've had two comedians now who have done TED Talks, including the lovely Jed Salisbury. So, um, there you go. That's quite impressive. I need to make sure we get another couple on, just so we can be the exclusive home of TED Talking Comedians. Anyway, um, Dave also does work with mental health charities, um, including Mind and Beat, um, and has recently set up um, a stand-up comedy course, or a comedy course exclusively for people with mental health issues, um, to effectively use comedy as therapy, I suppose. Um, and he set that up during lockdown. Um, and it's, I think it's a fantastic idea, personally. Um, comedy courses can be looked down on a little bit by some people in the industry, but an awful lot of really good comedians came through comedy courses. An awful lot of shit ones as well, like me. I came through a comedy course. Um, anyway, as well as all of that, um, we talk about the impact of lockdown on Dave um, and the very particular personal impact lockdown and COVID have had on him. Uh, which I didn't know about before the podcast, um, as you will find out during the, the conversation we have. It's sort of knocked me sideways slightly in the conversation, but uh, we talk about all of that. It's actually a really positive conversation. It's a really nice conversation, um, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And, uh, yeah, Dave's uh, he's one of the good guys. Uh, one of many good guys, I should say. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it. Let us know what you think. Um, hoping that uh, we might get some feedback from people. You know, like, subscribe, share, tell me what you think, drop me a message, drop me a DM on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. Let us know what you're thinking and enjoy. Cheers. So, uh, welcome to episode 21 of Sparks of Madness. Um, and with me this week is Dave Chawner, who's joining us from London. How are you doing, Dave? Very well, thanks, mate. Yeah, episode 21, that's, I mean, that's brilliant. That's yeah, that's after a massive after, right? gap as well. Um, I started it last year during the first lockdown, and then um, in about October time, I um, I just started procrastinating and didn't do anything until about three weeks ago. So, <laughs> And I have no excuse, it's just laziness, really. So I've also noticed as well that today, speaking to you with my introduction, I went a little bit breakfast radio DJ with the voice, and I think it's just because you're, you're calling from London or you're speaking from London. I don't know what that's about. Um, if, yeah. if anyone in local radio is listening and wants to give me a job hey hit me up that's fine um. <laughs> i've always thought that when people whenever they're reporting stuff in the news it's always like you know sort of graham rayner 31 it's like why is the age relevant yeah. i've never understood that yeah yeah absolutely it's, it's bizarre isn't it um or yeah. or when you know exactly who they're talking about but it's a police thing and they just go uh, a London man aged 47 and 300 <laughs> days or something and it's like yeah you mean so and so it's uh it's it's weird the way that people do that but anyway uh we digress so Dave you um you've been in touch with me about this podcast because it seems like you're probably the perfect guest in terms of ticking all of the possible disparate boxes that I might want to talk about so um let's start with your comedy career so how long have you been performing as a stand-up uh, I, well, I've, I've been actually performing stand-up with little to no success for the past 10, 11 years now. And I try not to say that out loud too much because then it feels real. Um, but yeah, that's it's probably it's over a decade now. I started when I was uh, back at university. And how did you get started? 
Oh, mate, it was. It, I just had this brilliant comedy club. Like, so when I went to uni, I went to university in Southampton, and they had this uh, gig that was originally booked by CKP, and it was three quid, and we got. To, to see Russell Howard, John Richardson, Stuart Francis, Rufus Hound. I think McIntyre did a warm-up gig there the, the year before he was nominated for the Barrier. It, it was it was brilliant. And I I just loved it. I just remember thinking this is this is me. This is it. Lovely stuff. I just thought it was I, I it was the buzz of it. It was the fun of it. And it's also the uh, honestly, the weirder the topic, the more I enjoyed it. Mm. And that was while you were at uni, so you were like a student comic, um, which is which is good. Because I, I started in my well, I'm 43 now, and I started two years ago. So you do the math. Um, but um, mine's very much more a midlife crisis, I suppose. But um, so <laughs> um, you're probably still younger than me, which is really fucking annoying. Um, but <laughs> so you you started out doing comedy. Now, when when you got in touch with me, you explained to me that. Um, you do a lot of material about mental health. Was that how you started? Did you talk about that at the start, or is that something that's evolved over time? And, and if so, how? It's a re- no. It's a really good point because I think when I started out, I did the whole kind of student thing of oh, there's this silly sign, or oh, look at what these people are doing in their freshers hall. But genuinely, I think one of the things, like I say, like the weirder the topic, the better. And actually, one of the things that I loved is when you actually look at most comic sets. There are very few comics out there that are sort of complaining about being too successful or too much of a hit with the opposite or the, the, the sex that they sort of choose. And, you know, no one's ever saying, oh, I'm too rich, I'm too successful, I'm too powerful, I'm too well-liked. And I actually really like that all comics are essentially freaks and underdogs. And I thought that was just brilliant. And I remember sort of seeing these really dark things of, like, people being broke and whatnot and thinking, you know what, like... I'd sort of at that point in time realised that I'd, I'd sort of had anorexia, still got anorexia. And I was like, you know what, if someone could use comedy in order to make it relate to me, that would be brilliant. Mm. So already then that's a, a start then in, in terms of a mental health issue, because, you know, eating disorders, I think, are profoundly affected to more general mental health issues. So you're, you're a student with an eating disorder, effectively, and yeah. you start talking about it on stage. What, what happens the first time you, you kind of, when you, I suppose the first time when you get something that lands as, a, as an act, when you're talking about those kind of topics, what was the reaction like that you got? Well, it was really weird because I started, I did comedy for a number of different, I just realised I didn't really answer your question before, but I did comedy for a, a number of years and like I do one gig every six months or whatever and then when I sort of moved to London I um, worked with an incredible comic called Robin Perkins and I said like for the first Edinburgh show that I did I wanted to do something that was a little bit different a little bit unusual because I feel that you can do that when you've got like an hour and so we did a show and for my part it was all about uh, my history with anorexia and for her part it was about her losing her um, partner like a, a boyfriend like he died when she was like 29 which is I think we can all agree absolute fertile ground for loads mm. of lols and I, it's, I kind like, of, it's breezy that's what it is isn't it oh no. yeah <laughs> yeah that's what it's what people say to me mate I always keep it light so that's yeah, all yeah. right in it um but I think it was interesting because when I actually first talked about it I think I did actually keep it too breezy like there's loads of and just hack horrible lazy jokes about you know oh i've got enough on my plate at the moment and you know (laughs) that's a good gag oh no that's to do with bulimia and all this kind of shit and robin helped direct me and so so, well now actually we need to go a little bit deeper like i actually want you to stop trying to use it as a this you know use humor as a distraction technique and actually use humor to actually talk about that stuff and that that was that was proper art because i feel like then you are really you know acknowledging something because i i don't know about you but i feel like a lot of the time you you, you kind of like use jokes to sort of distract from things like if yeah. joe brand wasn't a comedian people would definitely have put her on some sort of suicide watch now because she's always talking about how she's unattractive or too fan like if she was like a person that you knew from your mom you'd just be like are you all right because you don't seem happy mm. It's uh, so I think what you're summing up there is is bang on actually about the the need to go a little bit deeper than just scratching the mm. surface and 
I mean, I, in terms of actual material on stage, I only really, in terms of pre-written bits that I've done a lot, have one bit about my mental health. I don't do an awful lot about it. I think a lot of what I do might sort of opaquely link into it. But the what I've noticed, because I don't, I, I'm not known for that, or people that have seen me when I first started doing that may have been a bit taken aback because normally I just talk about like my cock or whatever. I'm a bit of a, <laughs> I do smut mainly. Um, the 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 first I remember the energy in the room, which had people in it I knew, people in it I didn't know. Um, when I first ran it out, changed massively. I actually felt the temperature of the room change because yeah. of the way I introduced it. it. Was a real it was a bit of a I mean it wasn't just a, a slight tangent from something. It was a real diversion from the material I had already been doing in the set, and then. I immediately started talking about mental health and I could see almost people because I introduce it in quite a frank and honest way. And I could see people starting to shift in their seat a bit and think, fuck, what's he doing here? This isn't, this isn't about his cock. This isn't his normal thing. Um, what, where's he going with it? And then I kind of, I, I get through it. It's only, a, I mean, it's probably the gag lasts a minute and a half. If I, you know, if I, if I play on the audience a bit um, and then they get the kind of the relief at the end of the, the, because the, the punchline is about my cock. Um, so I tie it back in. <laughs> but what's interesting is, and, and this is where I am leading to a question, I promise. Um, I've done that at various gigs where people haven't known me. Um, and and I've had on, on various occasions now people come up to me and just for that one joke, say it's really good at talking about that sort of stuff. I actually had a, I did a, a gig at a cricket club in, in Preston in Lancashire. Um, and as I was leaving, um, a, a lady, quite an old, I mean, older lady, probably around 60, um, came up to me and, I, and she said, I would like a word with you. And I thought, oh, fuck, I've offended someone. <laughs> um, I need to, you know, where did, where, where did I park the car? Can I get to it quickly? You know, <laughs> and, um, and then she said, I just wanted to thank you for talking about that. I'm a mental health uh, nurse. I, you know, I work in, in residential healthcare for people with mental health issues. And it's great to see someone talking about it. And I thought, well, I barely talked about it. So my question to you, I suppose, is do you find that, do you get feedback from an audience that they they appreciate the topic or do you not get those conversations? Oh, loads, all the time. And I think, I think I like you, I wasn't really ready for that. Mm. Um, and I remember um Rialina helped me sort of work on the show as well and she, I remember her saying that that shift in um that shift in energy of the audience isn't because they're uncomfortable or they're bored or they're weirded they're actually properly listening to mm. you and I I think that's a bit weird because you go to a comedy club and yeah ostensibly you expect like dick joke oh God, dang it I did a whole show about dick jokes about like you know having a circumcision when i was age 26 and i you know i wanted to call that show from the hood and i kind of do <laughs> all of you know ridiculous things but i actually think that the most frivolous seeming things are actually the most uh, pertinent mm. and i i think the, the the biggest thing that i've learned i think one of them is there's a difference between joking about something and joking around something so tell me if I'm getting too boring, but the joking about something is where the topic is the butt of the joke. So things like, you know, uh, my girlfriend's got OCD, sucks for her, but great for me because I've got like a tidy flat. The, the, the topic is yeah. the butt of the joke. Whereas you joking around is looking at aspects related to that so i sort of tell a stupid story which is true but part of the anorexia was i became obsessed with exercising mm. and i was always exercising as a teenager and i was going up to my room doing 50 push-ups 50 sit-ups 50 uh, 20 squats and i would do them in those blocks and i remember when i was writing uh the show about the anorexia i said to my mom well, why did you never say anything to me about the you know compulsion to exercise and she said well in our defence, you're a teenage boy, and when you keep on running up to the room and you can just do some <laughs> rhythmical banging, follow by, you know, you're not really going to ask questions. And I just thought that is so funny. Yeah. And and that's joking around. It's the aspects. It's the periphery and stuff related to it, rather than that thing being the topic 
being the focus and i think that's a huge shift and yeah i do get people all the time coming up and telling me either funny stories heart-wrenching stories and i think people are ready to talk about it we're just not really sure how to yet so you've done um quite a lot elsewhere outside of comedy linked to to mental health and and i suppose what i would before we start sort of looking at those is that because of the sort of stuff you've done in your comedy did it did one thing lead to another or or was it kind of either in spite of or completely unrelated to comedy what what led you to doing the other stuff that you're doing which we're about to touch on just what was the the genesis of that i suppose I think, like, so yeah, when I started uh, working on the Anorexia show, I got in touch with uh, Beat, which is the UK's eating disorder charity, and I do loads of stuff for them, um, and sort of mind of the Mental Health Foundation. But uh, yeah, I sort of work for them. And then there's a wonderful stand-up comic called Jake Mills, who started this thing called the Hub of Hope, which is the UK's biggest mental health directory so it's used by the likes of nhs england public health england mine the samaritans um and he's a stand-up comic as well so i got into all of that uh related to that but a little story that i do love telling people is that it's absolutely true this is no word of a lie um i was i started doing this stuff and got involved in loads of different charities and uh my girlfriend uh, did her doctoral thesis in men with eating disorders and she was presenting her research at a conference down in Brighton where I was the keynote speaker and we met and that was six years ago now so I'm not really a boyfriend I'm more of a case study but it <laughs> is true that like she's now an academic she works at King's College London and we're actually working we've got a PhD student that she's managing and I'm working together on so yeah it's kind of like it's, it's all just sort of I didn't really set out because I didn't really know there was a road that you could do that on but I've just kind of bumbled my way through and I think I'll get found out one day but not yet. Mm. So I mean that's the fact that you've managed to to, to well not even just get laid out of it but <laughs> get fully partnered up out of it is is um that's enough isn't it but you've done even more than that so yeah t- tell us about your book oh so uh, funny enough i uh i had that when so that came about um because um how's it about? oh a, a publisher saw a show that i was doing and they sort of said like look there's there's you know there's no books on male anorexia would you want to write this book and, and like I don't know if you find this as well but I kind of uh I, I got really uncomfortable with this idea of like sharing my story because I was like look I'm not Katie Price no one's no one's you know sort of saying oh how was he how was he doing that um but they said like we'll write the book that you needed when the anorexia developed and when I need I needed two things basically I needed people to treat me uh well I needed actual tangible coping mechanisms so stuff that you could do so I sort of put down loads of them but I also needed people to treat me like a person not a patient I think as soon as people found out that I've got a mental illness because they were nice they didn't want to say the wrong thing they started dealing with me differently yeah and that I found more isolating and because it was about anorexia I wanted to kind of use comedy so I originally wanted to call the book the real hunger games because I thought that was a good title but apparently that infringes copyright so (laughs) We, we okay. had to call it weight expectations and I it's basically there's this thing called the trans theoretical model which is a psychological model of change it basically says change didn't happen in one hit there's six stages to change and I structured the book around that and then wrapped it all up in whimsy and dick jokes so that no one would notice and and there you go and that was yeah that was lovely I was like coming up to three uh years ago now and I was just overwhelmed by the feedback like it you know god knows how it became a a bestseller which just shows people will buy any old shit and now i've you know using it as a <laughs> now i use them as a doorstop but uh, yeah it was it was interesting and honestly um i don't want to sound ungrateful at all but i hated the process of writing a book it's the worst thing in the world uh, is it quite lonely oh mate it's lonely. It's, it's all the bad points about stand-up, none of the good. You don't get a buzz. You don't get energy. You don't get that immediate uh, feedback. But also, I don't know about you, but like 
I just I would write something and it would be like fine lovely stuff revisit the next day and I was like was there a gas leak that was a terror, but why? What are you right? This is awful. And it took me the best part of 18 months to write it. Um, and yeah, I just, it just, I'm terrible. I'm so distractible that it just, I, I found it really, really, really challenging. And I, you know, I thought I was going to be like Roald Dahl. I'd go down to the bottom of the garden in the shed, put, put a little cup of tea on. But, you know, I, I live like Harry potter underneath the stairs and i pay about a grand for the privilege so i don't have a garden and actually it was just really a lot of work uh and i don't want to sound ungrateful it was a real privilege to be able to do it but it was also just absolute i don't know how stephen king does it <laughs> that's a big big uh, big jump though isn't it to stephen king i think but uh, yeah oh. um <laughs> so you've you've read a book you do work for various charities as well, but also you've started um, relatively recently. Uh, am I right? Is it a stand-up course or a comedy course, but yeah. aimed at the the people who do it being people with a mental health issue? Yeah. So I mean, this this came around. So um, I I do the stand-ins for Mock the Week, and the people that book us are called the Comedy School. And they already do, funnily enough, at the hospital that I was treated at, an improv course for people with mental health problems. Mm. And the more I talk to them, the more I realise that actually, like, learning stand-up is pretty much exactly the same as going through therapy. You know, you're, you're building your confidence, you're working on that communication and different styles, and you're building that connection with other people or an audience and i just thought i think that's amazing that you can do that and literally provide a platform for people who have experienced a mental health difficulties to stand up for themselves because you know what like yeah it's all bleak and i promise i'll you know move on but yeah there's there's no other way about it suicide is the biggest killer of blokes under 45 and i don't mm. think that's because blokes don't think to open their gobs. I think a lot of blokes want to talk and want to sort things out, but we've never really been given those tools. Mm. And also, whenever we talk about mental health, we always talk about mental illness, never good mental health. And actually yeah. by encouraging people with fun and having a laugh, then that kind of motivates people to go towards good mental health rather than just trying to steer away from bad mental health. Yeah, I think... It's certainly from my own experience in terms of wanting to talk about stuff. It, it isn't like you say a reluctance. Sometimes it's a lack of awareness of your own shit. Anyway, yeah. Um, you know it, it, that the first step of that is, you know, if you want to talk about any kind of cycle, I suppose the first step is is it's not even admitting to yourself you've got a problem. It's it's realizing you've yeah. got a problem and then admitting it to yourself. Because I think the first certainly when I first started feeling unwell when I had. a big episode about 10 years ago with depression and anxiety I probably knew something was wrong but brushed it off put it to one side buried it hid it because I didn't want to admit it but there was a stage where I didn't know I wasn't well and I suppose if I had known the signs like I do now I might have been able to nip it in the bud a bit or whatever um so how does it on your your comedy course then that you, you do because the first thing I thought, thought was stand-up comedy course for people with with mental illness or mental health issues is just a stand-up course because anyone who does stand-up <laughs> do you know what I mean I've not I've genuinely that's one of the reasons why I wanted to start this podcast was because I suddenly realized that that you know you talk about any well-known stand-ups or certainly all of my comedy heroes have been fucked up at some point in some way and then people I meet on the circuit people I talk to everyone's got a story of their own crisis or their own issues or and 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 it's a myriad of things it's a wide range of things you know you've talked about eating disorders people talk about eating disorders bipolar borderline personality disorder all kinds of stuff all the flavors of fucked up you can be and that's the stand-up circuit so what how do you I suppose what I'm leading to is how do you find the people how do the people that are doing the course find you what's the you know what how do you hook them in on that hook of mental health 
Well, you know what? The honest answer is, by the way, subsequently, I really love the phrase, all flavours have fucked up. <laughs> it's become a thing I've said in the last couple of episodes, and I think it's right. I think it genuinely is. It's like a, yeah, it's, it is like a, because th- there's no no two people have the same combination, as mm. far as I've I, I, come across. I think that should be your debut album, All Flavours <laughs> have, have Fucked Up. Yeah. Good. I just love that. <laughs> I, I think for me, well, it's very, very early days, because basically... Yeah, I came up with this idea and I sort of chucked it out there to the likes of Mind and the Mental Health Foundation. And I was really overwhelmed with the response. And um, then all of a sudden the University of Kent got involved, King's College London, University of Nottingham. It's only been going six months and we've been lucky enough to be funded to win two funding bids. So the first one was through um, a charity that I am the patron of. They like the idea, so they'd pilot it, and that's been funded by Derbyshire County Council. So they've sorted out all of the people that have come. But the British Academy have just funded it in the past couple of days. So we're going to have to find people with that. But I think to answer the question about... I absolutely couldn't agree. I think that, like, on the circuit, generally... I mean, I don't know if you found this, but like whenever, when I started dating my girlfriend, she'd always like, you know, come along to my gigs and stuff, but she stopped. And I was like, oh yeah, you get bored of hearing the same thing. She was like, no, just sitting in green rooms. <laughs> it's just depressing. You know, <laughs> All of these people are like, oh, she's taking the kids in the car. And you're like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's really sort of do her. And I think, Yes, I think on the circuit, there are a lot of people that are much more inclined to talk about their mental health or experience mental health problems than the general population. I think for me, sometimes the reason that I wanted specifically to focus the way that I teach it and direct it and market it uh, at people with mental health problems, because I feel sometimes people would want to engage in comedy, would love to do it but would worry that they were never the loudest kids yeah. in the class. They were never the ones playing pranks. They weren't the laddish ones. And actually most really good comics are not the loudest people in the room because they don't have to be. Greg yeah. Davis talks about this of like, you know, he sort of said that if he didn't do comedy, he would be insufferable because he gets his hit on stage and now he can just go to the pub with his mates and just, yeah, have a laugh, but listen rather than mm. talk. Yeah. I, I think um, the, 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 when you talk about the green room as well, it's, you know, some of the stuff that I've, I've tried to explain this to my wife, because my wife doesn't come and watch me do comedy. She's, she's watched me a couple of times, but she's not, you know, she's, she's very much like your first thought with your missus is, you know, she's seen it all before, you know, until I'm doing new material or whatever, what's the point? But so that means that I car share a lot uh, because I drive. I'm one of those comedians in the north. One of the I think there's about four comedians north of the Watford Gaffer Drive. Um, and I, I drive and have access to a car. So I tend to carpool a lot. And, and some of the conversations we have in the car, if people could see those, A, they would just be hideously offended cancel culture would be like a drop in the bucket compared to some of the shit that we come out with but also just how fucked up people can be and how and and like you say the 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 insecurities and the depression and the all of that stuff is is completely at odds with what the audience sees when you go on stage i think um unless unless your thing is being that kind of anxious neurotic comic which some people have as a bit of a a shtick um so yeah I, I think it's interesting to me so have have you actually completed a because i know you've only started it in the last few months have you completed a course yet or are you kind of with your first lot of, of intake or, or what you know what so i did the first one i did with a range of friends uh academics and a couple of people on twitter who just randomly didn't know that got in touch and it was amazing. It genuinely, I think it was a really biased one because I've got some friends, but there was one guy who, and this honestly isn't a sort of Cinderella story. This is honestly what happens. But throughout, I hate to say it, there was a group of 10 of them. And they're all brilliant. That there was one person who was perhaps like, you know, sort of struggling with it a little bit, not as quick off the mark. There were some very quick-witted people. And it was always kind of last. And the last week of the course was to sort of 
do our little bits and then get feedback. And he honestly knocked it out of the park. He was brilliant. Mm. And I was like, mate, that is for your, for any set, that would be good. But for your first five minutes, that is incredible. And I'm now doing it, of course, with complete uh, strangers, I'd say. And I'm, uh, tonight will be the fifth of uh, six. Right. So weeks. it's genuinely amazing. So, and is, that's presumably all online because of COVID. Um, yeah. So post COVID, because, you know, hey, in two months' time, it looks like we might be able to actually, you know, have a microphone in our hands in front of people again. Um, are you planning on continuing this post COVID and, and doing it in person, or, or what, what are your thoughts? <laughs> well, I, I know how this is probably going to go down, but yes, I certainly want to. I mean, the idea long term, we're already in talks with a couple of NHS um, commissioners, but ideally, ideally, there's this thing called social prescribing that we would love to get out there and make it a nationwide thing and do proper academic studies alongside it to, you know, make this uh, a very sustainable because it's quite high impact, but it's low cost as well, mm. which is what we need at the moment. Um, but I think I'm the only comic who prefers doing gigs online. Oh, God, I love it. I really? love it. I don't want to do it. You've added a new flavour to the fucked up uh, menu there. <laughs> <laughs> I hate them. <laughs> I, I've done a few and I just, and I don't, I mean, I just can't, I can't connect with it. And I don't mean that on a technical level. I mean, literally on a personal level, I find it so hard to connect with um and and it just leaves me cold um which means that because on stage in front of an audience i'm pretty much never faking it i'm i'm always i'm having a good time even if no one else is fuck it you know i'm going to enjoy myself and i'm going to if no one else is laughing i'm going to make myself laugh and you know that's kind of my demeanor on stage and and thankfully that means that normally everyone has a good time or most people do on over zoom or whatever it it's just there's some intangible barrier that for me stops me connecting in the same way i don't even particularly like zoom calls with the family you know let alone trying to entertain strangers so i find it really hard i've done a few and they've gone all right but to me they feel really inauthentic so what do you like about them well i mean firstly i think the difference between me and you is like you know audiences have never really laughed at my jokes anyway so that's you know <laughs> i've been training for this for fucking years um but i i think i mean specifically with the comedy course i actually really like it because i've done uh, i've made it really interactive because i realized that trying to keep people's attention via the internet is really really difficult so there's loads of animation which means that it's taken so long to create but it's kind of like a dave gorman kind of that sort of like constantly yeah. think whizzing in whizzing out so that people feel that for the full hour they have to have their full attention and ideally i want people to feel that it runs really quick but the thing that i love about actually performing is and how bad is this this is terrible i love festivals because i love just staying a weekend a week a month in a place the one thing that i will never enjoy about comedy is the travel and I, I hate that's why I do increasingly fewer circuit gigs because nothing just kills me more than traveling six hours in a car to do a 20 minute gig and then pop home. And that also compounded with the fact that, like, Jesus, the amount of gigs that I've traveled four or five hours and I've been told by the promoter, you know, it's nice money and whatever. And the promoter's like, oh, it's going to be great. And then you get there and there's like, it's actually just the, the arse end of a pub and there's a jukebox and a snooker table and no one wants you there. And you're just mm. like, nobody's getting anything from this. So I think it, it's honestly just the travel. That is, that is it. And I, uh, I kind of like doing, doing gigs in person will be great, but I just, I just say the travel. So Covid then has as potentially is it, I mean, is it is it still hit you hard or is it hit you maybe less hard than others or I well without being too um, unfortunately around this time it's coming up to twelve months ago that unfortunately my dad's very very early on in the pandemic uh, sixty eight got uh, it was all right got covid and unfortunately didn't make it oh shit uh, to hear which that. Was, 
No, cheers, man. So I think that, I think I have a different view on it to perhaps others. Um, and that was a bit weird because uh, I was literally chatting to dad six hours before he passed and no one really saw it coming. So I think that's been a bit weird, but I feel, um, I feel very fortunate, very lucky that aside um, yeah, apart I, from your dad dying in because from COVID, how hard has COVID I, been? Can't be my next question, Dave. I can't ask you that because that would be fucking awful. <laughs> but, I, I also realised that like what I meant to say was I skipped a sentence out of my mind. So and, and that's unfortunately when my old man who I love died. So I've been very fortunate. And I was like, no, <laughs> that's not what I... That is uh, not... Jesus. But yeah. I kind of, uh, I, I'm really lucky though that I was, my dad was just brilliant and I was very close and very lucky to know him. Mm. Um, and that's how I kind of see it and have processed it. But, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have kids. I don't have uh, a mortgage. Um, so I'm, I'm all, I feel like I'm all right, you know? Yeah, yeah you've coped apart from the, yeah. obviously your big, your big loss, which I'm, I'm genuinely sorry about, and you know, I'm glad we were able to have a minor laugh about it. But um, so, I suppose then that's because that's my next question would be, if it had hit you hard, what you've been doing to cope. But it sounds like you've kind of, you know, apart from having to process that awful um, issue with your dad passing away, apart from that, it feels like it sounds like you've been on a bit of an even keel. Has your mental health generally? Obviously, you started out talking, and you know you've written books about your anorexia, and and you've you've done TED talks and shows and all kinds of stuff. Is that an indication that actually day to day your mental health is on quite an even playing field, on an even keel, or does it do, do, like anybody else? Do you have big dips or and big big highs? What what's what's it like for you day to day? I mean, it's a really good question. I think the, the the problem with, like you were saying earlier on, the problem with mental illness is it becomes your day-to-day -day normality. So it's really hard to tell when things change. It's like that thing with a a, a frog in a saucepan, isn't it? Mm. If you put, apparently, if you put a frog in a saucepan and then heat up the liquid, then it doesn't realise it's boiling or something. Something, I'm sure... Some sick fucker found that. If that's actually been done as an experiment, there's some... I'm just going to make some frog soup or something. I'll put him in alive. And then, I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. fucked up, isn't it? Some sick it's one of those things that people go like, how did you, what were you doing? <laughs> Is um, this just a metaphor yeah. or have you been literally cooking frogs at home? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of feel that like, to be honest, the things that I've, um, the things that I struggle with the most, the things that I am actually probably more embarrassed to talk about, but I'm very lucky that I have like loads of different coping mechanisms of like, I've actually like, gone for a lot more walks, et cetera, in lockdown and keeping things tidied and ordered has really helped me and reading really works and all of that kind of jazz. But the things that I do struggle with are the things that I'm perhaps more embarrassed about and something that I will always, uh, and I don't think I'll ever be able to reconcile this, but with comedy is uh, status anxiety. And mm. should I be doing that gig? Why won't that gig book me for that? What's happened about this? I only got this many stars. I hate that. And I try not to compare to my other, to myself, to other people. And I do genuinely try not to do that. But sometimes, especially in an industry where you are, constantly compared to other people whether that's on a bill whether that's on a, a poster or a festival I find that difficult and that also leads into something that I really struggle with is jealousy it's not a nice thing to say it's not something mm. that I wish I don't but I, I do hate that envy and jealousy and that's something that I'm really trying to work on at the moment because I'm terrified that when the old clubs open up it, I do worry that it's going to be like rats in a barrel, everyone kind of scrabbling to yeah. get as much work as possible. Yeah, I think, um, well, you know, you, you, I think you referred to it as status anxiety and other people who've talked about it on here have, talk, you know, sort of talked about imposter syndrome, which I think is kind of mm. a hand-in-glove thing of uh, genuinely from the people I've spoken to at different levels of, and I'm talking from open spot up to full-time comic, um everyone's got that fear i think at the moment of yeah. what's it going to be like after such a long everyone everything's hit pause some of the clubs have gone away sadly which is awful some of the clubs have managed to limp through 
what's it going to be like you know are we all going to be you know is the industry going to kind of eat itself for a while while people try and get get stage time and money and gigs and what have you and I don't know anyone who hasn't got that level of anxiety and I think in a way although that doesn't diminish the individual impacts of that I think that it's a good thing because yeah apart from a very small number of people who have managed to absolutely um, turn the the isolation of COVID to their advantage, and I'm, I, I refer to him a lot on this pod of, you know, Scott Bennett in Nottingham has done loads with his comedy stand up from the shed every Thursday, new material coming out every week, and he was smashing it through lockdown to the point where he was getting on the telly as a result of basically having a, a live gig every Thursday, and a few other really top level pros doing regular weekly gigs. You know, I know Marcus Brigstock does a, a weekly thing, and Sarah Millican does a weekly thing. Um, most other comics have been largely in hibernation or doing what I've done and start a podcast just to try and keep themselves busy or keep a bit of interest or whatever. Everyone's in the same boat. No one's lost ground really on anyone else. But it's that thing of as soon as you start applying for gigs, where you might have been one of 30 before, you might be one of 70 now. And how do you get your head and shoulders above the, the, the rest? But I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. And I, don't, I think it will just be take time you know, taking the time, I suppose, for everything to settle back to something close to what it was before. Um, what's good, though, is I think new things will come out of it as well, though. I think that some people will keep doing online gigs. I think it's it's cheap, overheads-wise. It's it's more accessible. You, you know, you've got a potential audience, limitless audience, because anyone needs an internet connection. You're not thinking of having to get 60 people in a pub or whatever. So I think it, it might be different, but but back to some sort of normality relatively soon. I think by the end of the summer, unless we end up back in lockdowns, I think it will have that sense of status that was there before people having their own little part of the rung on the ladder will hopefully come back to normal. I think. Um, and also a lot of people have left the industry, you know, at various levels as well. They're just, they've said they're done with it and they're not, you know, and they're not coming back or they've, they've found other careers or, whatever so I think it, there might be a slightly smaller pool as well but I don't know um I do I think it has shown also as well like the the importance of staying stable so like one of my mates we always used to talk about this ages ago she always used to say that there were like five pillars she always used to see life as five pillars of your friends your family where you live what you do and relationships those were your five and I feel like stand-up's kind of the same of like I, I went full time back in 2013 and stand up was the, you know, that was it. That's how I went lovely, lovely stuff. And now I do bits and bobs of radio, which has been really lovely. And I also do bits and bobs of like, you know, mental health and mental health training and stuff like that. And actually everybody at no matter what level has a side hustle, even if that is, Jimmy Carr has his TV work as well as his live work. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. And I, I think having a side hustle is, I think it was Scott Bennett. And I might be, I might be completely wrong here, but I think Scott Bennett um, uh, used to be a caretaker in a school and uh, he used to uh, do it overnight. So they basically gave him the keys and said, like, look, just make sure it's clean in the morning. So he'd do gigs. And when he'd finished gigs, be like, you know, pumped up. And then we'd go and clean the school at like three in the morning. And, uh, you know, still did that for, I think it was him. Uh, that was telling me that but yeah but there's loads of little things i think everyone has their own little side hustle and mm. there's no there's absolutely no shame in that and if anything i think it's a better thing yeah i think i think it's it's sensible because what covid has taught us is that if live performance was your sole source of income you were probably really screwed in the last year and i know i know yeah. some people have been um, and and I, my wife and I, because I'm not ready, I'm nowhere near ready to turn pro yet. Um, I think I, I could be within a couple of years. Um, and obviously COVID, COVID set that back. And, it, you know, if it happens, it happens. But my wife turned to me in probably June and just said, it's a bloody good job you're not a professional yet, isn't it? <laughs> you know, because we're sat in our house with a mortgage and with the car payments and the kids and the, you know, and you go, yeah, actually it's a bloody good job. I've still got, I'm, I'm really lucky. I've got a decent salaried job. 
um, comedy, the money I get from comedy is is not without boasting isn't necessary to me I can live without it for me the, the it's the love of comedy and the the buzz I get from performing and and the sort of and actually the sense of of self-worth I get from it that I don't get from my day job um that's why I do it but longer term I'd love to go pro but I'm fully aware that I couldn't to, to do the maths to to bring home what I bring home from my day job doing comedy I'd have to be gigging at a certain level every night and and, and the journey there is just fraught with problems if you've already got a full-time job so yeah side hustles are the way to go I think I think you're absolutely right um what's what's the future for you then now then so you've you've had your book are you writing any more books or is that you done with books now oh god no well I mean ironically <laughs> ironically Pippa Evans just released a really interesting book called uh improv improv your life about using uh, improv to sort of tackle things and it was with the same publisher that I've got and I kind of was like oh well, I actually really could do this comedy course as a book as well and I was like no but oh god no. so I think I'm gonna that's a sort of longer term thing I'm gonna grapple with but I'm, I'm so excited about the doing the comedy course and winning these kind of grants is brilliant and I'm working on a new show which is which I've loved subsequently uh working on um called underdog and it's all about the idea of how dogs are better than humans and <laughs> uh, how dogs will save the world. And that's been, I've been really lucky that, I don't know if you know Steve Bennett from Chortle. Yeah, one um, of them, yeah. yeah. Uh, he's like, I, I've sort of chatted to him. So he's uh, agreed that he's going to sort of direct the show. So we're working together on that, which is... That's your Chortle uh, review in the bag then. <laughs> <laughs> Five stars from Chortle. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this, it's either that or someone kind of go like, if someone goes the direction of this show, it's bloody terrible. Then, oh, God, I am so sorry. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's I suppose that's the the, the big one is the dog show, the comedy course uh, for mental health. And then keep doing uh, bits and bobs of, uh, of the, the mental health stuff, which is, yeah, Always, to be honest, I think that is the show that I love doing the most, and I yeah. can't really, yeah. honestly, see myself ever getting bored of that. I think it's um, what's come across, and it's—I always worry when I, I sort of during these podcasts, I sometimes give almost live feedback to people. <laughs> I don't know why I feel the need to do it, and then I feel like while I'm saying it, I feel like the biggest, most patronising prick ever. Which you know, so I'm going to precursor this with. I don't intend this to be patronising. But what what's been really nice talking to you is, you seem to have this inbuilt kind of optimism, I suppose, or positivity about issues that, and we've only touched on them at the most quite superficial levels, really, in some ways. But these issues are that you've talked about, and these initiatives you've talked about can be quite grave and serious and. And I suppose the very fact that you talk about them on stage during comedy means that you've got a certain, you can have a bit of a lightness of touch with it. But that positivity is really infectious, I suppose. Um, do you find that? Do, do you find that people actually react well just to your general demeanour about mental health? I think, well, well, firstly, thank you. And I think it's two things on that. I think that there can be a kind of victim narrative I, I personally and look I'm not going all keyboard social justice warrior on this one I don't point people out of it but I really don't like it when people say oh you've been a sufferer it just sounds yeah. pathetic and a bit like bleh and wet um and, and actually I, I kind of like I do think that people are led more by positivity than negativity you know like hmm. um yeah, no one's ever no smokers ever bought a packet of fags and looked at the pack and go oh jesus smoking kit i didn't know that right i'm gonna stop you know people know that smoking's not good for you but they still do it anyway but actually if you sort of said you know when you could improve x y and z i think more people will perhaps be perceptive to that yeah and actually the second point is instantly off the back of this i was really lucky a couple of years ago um uh mind uh mind wrote this book called letters to a stranger and i was asked to write like the sort of final bit in that was a real privilege real honor 
and they gave us uh, a free copy. And I remember that in it, Caitlin Moran, who I actually really, really like, had written mm. a brilliant bit. And I, I just remember this so clearly that she said, um, having mental illness is a lot like uh, taking a layer of skin off. Obviously, it makes you more vulnerable to things. You perhaps feel things more sensitively and that can make you more vulnerable. But equally, it means that you feel the good stuff. You feel the sun, you feel the heat a lot more. And in that brilliant, so it's a sort of double-sided... It's a hell of an analogy, that, isn't it? Kind yeah. Of helps to the quick, really, actually, of a lot of what those issues are. And I think it's, when you say about not wanting to, to label yourself as having, you know, been a sufferer or whatever, I, I, I kind of get that. And I, I suppose the the closest um, thing I could put to that is my, my wife had um, cancer uh, 12 years ago. No, 10 years ago, sorry. Um, and it was detected extremely early. And the operation that she needed um, to remove it was done extremely quickly. So actually, she never at any point became... What, in her own words, she never became ill with cancer. She didn't actually suffer mm -hmm. the symptoms of cancer. So regularly she will correct people when they say when you were ill. And she's, she's always said, I wasn't ill. I was diagnosed and then I was recovering from the operation, basically. And and I think that, that and also people who refer, sometimes get referred to as victims who prefer to be called survivors and things like that. I think those labels are sometimes as, as petty as it might seem to correct people or as you know, awkward as it might seem to do that, are really important because they it's really easy to be defined by shit like yeah. this, I think. Really easy. And certainly when I had my depression and anxiety, I did things that I'm perpetually ashamed of. I behaved in an awful way to some really close people to me. And whilst I know that the, the main catalyst for that was my mental health was in the fucking toilet at the time, that doesn't excuse for me. That doesn't excuse it. It doesn't mean that I shouldn't should feel guilt free about it. And but yeah, I don't want it to define that period of my life either. You know, I like to talk about it. I like to be open about it because I think it's helpful. But it's really the labels people give themselves are so important, and especially when you find people giving themselves those labels without ever having been diagnosed or, you know, I'm, I'm you mentioned OCD earlier. I'm a bit OCD because I like my dad alphabetized CDs or something like that. Is you see shit like that all the time and it cheapens what people really go through. Um, yeah. So I, I think it's important to get the, the, the labels right, but your attitude to it is, is genuinely, it's, it's infectious actually. I'm sitting here feeling positive and uplifted. Um, and most of the time with this podcast that happens, but occasionally you'll talk about stuff that kind of sits with you for a bit. You know, people talk about specific, you know, incidents or whatever. Um but with yours, I just feel, I'll feel optimistic, and I'll um, and actually, I, what I'll be doing is looking out for that course to see if anyone of note comes through the book, the ranks, you know. Because um, oh, you might find you what the, the goal, the surely the holy grail for you is to find someone who then goes on and and becomes someone you're competing with for gigs. <laughs> which is well, like, I, yeah. Well, this is the thing. I mean, I'm really lucky to have worked with the wonderful Harriet Dyer on her Barking uh, Tales gigs and mental health gigs. And yeah, yeah, exactly. I would love, honestly, long term to set up a kind of circuit that is just about mental health and different people with different diagnoses talking about that thing. I just think that would be brilliant. And that would be something that would be so fun to yeah. go and watch. And, yeah, and you know I think what? It probably like, would. It wouldn't be just aimed at the one in four. It would be aimed at the four in four. Everyone has mental health and nothing would make me happier than seeing, you know, perhaps a big group of lads or perhaps a, a Hindu come in and you go, oh, by the way, you, you know what this gig is, right? And they go, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I just think it sounds great. I just yeah. love that. I think that'd be brilliant. Well, that's um, something to look forward to. Make it happen. You're, you know, you're, you're in the driving seat there, buddy. Um, so uh, I'm going to finish, um, if I may, with the question that I ask everyone. Um, All gone. And I, this is the, the closing question. And I'm about as confident as I've ever been about your answer, um, I think. But I'll ask it anyway. Feel free to knock me on my ass and prove me wrong. Um, if, uh, if I could wave a magic wand and take away your your bad experiences with your own mental health in the past so take away the anorexia take away kind of the 
the the status anxiety, the imposter syndrome, all of that stuff that might have affected you over the years. So it's never happened. You you're in a perpetual state of positive and good mental health for all of your days. But the cost is that you never never get to perform comedy again. Would you take that deal? That's a very good question. Um, no, well, no. I mean, the obvious one is no because that that the experiences make you who you are and there's so many deep and profound things that I could say on that but also I just think that person sounds like an asshole if they're always positive <laughs> my god I'd, I'd hate to be around them she's always but that's not British so no they sound that's like not British that's pretty yeah <laughs> so that is out of 21 episodes only one person has said that they would take the deal um and they they surprised me massively when they said it so yeah that's uh, wow. that's interesting so I, you know, I was, and, and to be honest, I'm, I'm really fucking angry with them because they've ruined what would have been a perfect clean street. <laughs> you know, and I think that might be why they did it, but I'm not sure. Um, so listen, Dave, it's been absolutely fascinating speaking to you um, because it's been a pleasure, mate. Yeah, well, as I, I go to pains to anyone listening to this who isn't in the circuit, you know, we, us comedians who are talking on things like this haven't always met, we don't always know each other, um, but we know of each other, and and. Um, I'll be keeping an eye out even more closely for what you're doing in the future because I'm, I'm fascinated. I might even um, get hold of your book, I think. So. Oh, mate, I'll send you a copy, honestly. Don't, don't <laughs> buy it. Not, that wasn't me. Angling, just because I'm from Yorkshire, it wasn't me angling for a freebie, you know. Oh, but, mate, I wouldn't I wouldn't buy it if I were you. Uh, so <laughs> I'll send you a freebie. If your publisher could hear you now. <laughs> Well, they, I mean, I this is a little thing, and then I promise I'll shut up. Genuinely, uh, the day that it was the day that it was released, they got me onto uh, Lorraine, and they were really excited. And I sat there with, and, and genuinely, got on with Lorraine Kelly like really, really well because like you sometimes sort of see. Um, it's a really long story. It doesn't matter. Anyway, they got us on Lorraine, and I was there, and she was like. Ooh, it's lovely you've got a new bouquet isn't that fantastic and I was like to be honest I don't think it's that good to be honest I, there's better, better books out there they went mental at me they were so angry it was brilliant superb that's fantastic Dave it's been a pleasure please take care of yourself and uh, keep doing what you're doing it's fantastic thank you So there you have it, that was Dave. Um, and it was just a lovely conversation, I really enjoyed it. It was one of those that, as, as a lot of these seem to do, um, I do try and keep the episodes at around 45 minutes, because I think that you guys probably have the attention span of a five-year-old. Um, but it sort of flew by, and I felt like there was so much to cover that we probably only dipped in, really, to, to those issues. But I found it fascinating, I found a really interesting guy. Um, and I suppose, the example of what we're talking about as comedians with mental health issues dealing with shit going on in their lives and sometimes finding a bit of humour was the, the conversation we had about Dave's dad um, passing away due to COVID and, and just how that affected the conversation. Uh, we both ended up having the briefest of giggles about that issue, just about the way that that can knock the conversation and make it awkward. A lot of other people might not be able to do that, I don't know. Um, but certainly, sometimes when you've got the mind of a comedian um, you're almost always looking for something funny in that and that's what we were doing there I think um, and and you know laughter is the best medicine it, it, it's a cliche but I think it's true um, I remember laughing about my mum when she passed away laughing about some of the, the stories about her and it's a healer um, you know we turn to that in grief so it was really interesting talking to Dave. I hope you think so too. Um, I will put um, links to his book, his TED talk, and all of that other wonderful shit that he's done um, on the the blurb for this. Um, so please do look it up. Um, and uh, like I say, let me know what you think. We've got some good episodes coming up. We've got a couple more people lined up. But as usual, if you listen to this and you think you'd make a good guest, all you need to do is be a comedian and uh, be one of those flavours of fucked up that we were talking about. So. Drop me a line. Take care. Bye-bye. Sparks of Madness is hosted by Graham Rayner and is a gag and bone man comedy production.